Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's been two and a half years now for a lot of people working from home, myself included. And so we're no longer in the exploratory phase of this experiment. We're no longer in the, I'm kind of figuring it out. We are now well-established. If you've been doing this, if you've been working from home, you know exactly what it's going to be about. There's not going to be any more surprises. And so you probably at this point have a pretty good idea. Whether you like it or whether you're chomping at the bit to get back into the office with your colleagues. Well, Enveronics has done some... um, some studying into this and ask some people this and uh, to the surprise, I think of nobody <laughs> less alone me, certainly probably not my next guest, the overwhelming percentage of people say, uh, yeah, you know, I'll stay at home. No need for me to go back to the office. I'm good. I am just happy to roll over, not have traffic to get to work, work in my underwear and have cheap coffee. I'm good with that. Andrew Parkin is executive director of the Enveronics Institute. He joins us now. Andrew, thanks for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. This uh, Now, look, you guys do great work. You do a lot of different polls and research and everything else. I have to guess that even though most of these you go into without a preset notion of where the answer may go, you probably had a pretty good idea what this was going to look like. I, I think that's fair to say we did now. I think when we we... we first started doing this in 2020, right, when this was new, we were more surprised then because, you know, right at the beginning when we were all trying to get used to having the laptop open on the kitchen table and the kids learning from home at the same time and and trying to figure out how Zoom worked and so on, I, I think at that time we weren't so sure and we were a little surprised at how positive the feeling was then. Now, now we are used to it. At, at the same time, we didn't know whether it was starting to wear on people, starting to grade on people, people starting to itching to get back. And as you said, not not really. So I think there's, you know, a little bit of surprise that it hasn't worn off more than more than it has. But certainly, yes, I think we're all getting used to the theme that there's no going back to the way it was. Mm. Uh, according to your numbers, 78% of respondents prefer working from home. That's a 64% increase since December of 2020. So a part of this, I got to believe there's a couple things here. One of them maybe, and you touched on it. At the beginning, you were taking your laptop. You were probably trying to find a place to work. It wasn't conducive. I bet you millions, literally millions of people have now set up home offices and created a spot that feels like now the place where you want to work. That's a, that's a start. For, for sure. And I, I think there's a couple of things I'll add. One is, yeah, so the people who are working at home overwhelmingly, they, they say they want to keep doing that. And not only that, but when you ask them, you know, how often, it's basically almost every day, right? So when people say, I want to keep working from home, they don't mean, you know, once a month or whenever I have a dentist appointment, it would be nice to, to kind of just take the whole day. They, they mean, you know, I regularly, I want to, I want to keep doing this. But they're, they're, None of this is to say there aren't some struggles. So the, the certain number of people, uh, you know, not everyone, but a, a sizable minority say, look, I find it difficult to do my job well. Um, some people are worried about how this is going to affect their careers long time. Some people are finding it hard to have a separation between work and family. But what's important is that even those people want to keep working from home. In other words, it's not either or. It's not either this is great or this is driving me crazy. There's, there's certain things that are a challenge to fix, but even if those challenges are there, people saying, you know what, I actually like this better than when I used to go into work every day. 
And I think that, one of the things this, tell, this tells us, it, 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 when I first saw these numbers, I thought this is telling us not just something about what it's like working from home. This is telling us something important about what it was like working in your regular place of work before the pandemic. And that wasn't all a bed of roses for a lot of people. That's, that's one of the things that came to mind as soon as I saw this was what does this say about your workmates, your workplace? What does this say about the culture and the people who were there? It's, it's not complimentary. No, that that's it. I think there's there's some you know serious things to uh, to to think about here. You know, part of it could be the commute, uh, especially if you're in the GTHA. Uh, you know, it's not not everyone was enjoying uh, the the travel time. Um, you know, a lot of it is you know we joke about how we can you know you can take Zoom in your track pants and no one will see. Uh, but there's a serious point around that that the sort of appearance part, right? Getting, uh, you know, having to worry about whether you're wearing the right clothes, uh, that you've got the right, uh, uh, you know, look on for the day. That was, I think, probably stressful for a lot of people. Sure it was. Sure it was. Because you, you want to present properly and now that you don't have to do so much. And and, and when I saw your numbers, and again, I, I think your numbers are bang on, but I thought maybe they would be a little lower. And the only reason I thought they might be a little bit lower, and you just touched on it a second ago, when you are working from home, for a lot of people, work never goes away. When you leave the office, you could leave your laptop, you could leave your computer, you're free for the day. When you're at home and the computer is only five or ten strides away and you think of something, I thought maybe the one thing that people wouldn't like about working was you never separate yourself from it now. I, yeah, and I, I, I think that's there. But again, I think maybe it forces us to look back and say, how was that separation before, right? Because with email and so on, you can leave uh, where you work and you can get in the car and you can drive home and you can get home and you take your phone out and it's buzzing. So it, it leads me to wonder maybe that separation. So, so I think it's an issue, right? I'm not saying it's not a problem. I think what I'm saying is maybe it was also a problem before. Yeah, just a, yeah, painted differently, but a problem that, that existed for sure. Your numbers also say, and again, not surprising to me, maybe to some people, that the younger you are, the more likely you want to be able to work at home. Uh, that, if nothing else, um, that would suggest to me that if you are someone who has a business, this is going to affect how you approach business going forward. If you want to hire people, this clearly seems like for the next generation, this is going to be something that's important. I, I think that's right, but I think there there is a little bit of a mix there because there's there's the question of whether you you know you want to have the option to work from home, which I think you just uh, touched on. But if if you then go and get to that question of how often, it flips a little bit. So young people actually are uh, less wedded to working from home every day. So I think the flexibility is important, but it makes sense if you're earlier in your career, you have less established networks and so on. Um, you get more out of going into the office uh, or the, the workplace. Not everyone works in an office, of course. Um, uh, but but for older people who are working from home, they're like, yep, I can do this all the time now. I'm not missing anything. Or, you know, I have my friends from work and they're not going to go away just because I, uh, I don't show up in the workplace. So there is that, that nuance. Young people, I think, definitely want that flexibility. And as you say, employers have to uh, keep that in mind if they're recruiting. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a bit more concern among young people that maybe they're mm. missing out on something, including, you know, mentorships and connections. 
Well, and you touch on mental health in this as well. And that's, you know, I mean, I don't want to say it's a hot button. Well, it is a hot button issue. I was going to say not like a, a code word or something, but there are those who probably do much better when they are working by themselves. There are probably those also who go a little bit zany when they're sitting by themselves all the time, who really want to get back to work, if if only for the social part. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Again, this is this is not easy for, for everyone. And it, it kind of comes back to that, fle- that issue of flexibility, right? Because despite these numbers that you and I have been talking about, it's not the case that everyone's comfortable working at home, and it's not the case that people who do that want to do it every day. But if you flip that around, there's very few people who don't want to have the option. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's what's important for employers. Uh, the sort of reading from this, the survey found people who head into their workplace regularly are, here's a quote, somewhat more likely to report poorer mental health than those who have been working remotely. doesn't mean that if you work in the office, you're suffering all the time, but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing here. One thing, I don't know if you asked this question, we got to run, but I don't know if you asked this, uh, how would this, how do you think this would be answered if you had only asked bosses about whether they want people in the office? <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't, uh, uh, we didn't um, zero in on, on that group. Uh, and I think others, you know, employers, associations, chambers of commerce and so on, I think they need to talk to their employers and, and see. Certainly, I think, you know, there are definitely uh, some employers who uh, have found, look, this is actually has a lot of advantages for us, including productivity, right? Uh, people, happier, happier workers uh, are, can be more productive workers. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people starting to save on rent. Uh, for for office places, but it really absolutely on the type of type of business you are and the type of employer you are and so on. But no, this is uh, we've we've just uh, working with the general population here, so we don't zero in on how employers uh, are feeling about this or coping. Fasc- it's a fascinating survey. Again, I think for a lot of people, predictable, but reinforces what I would think that a lot of people would have expected is the case. Uh, Andrew Parkin, executive director of the Enveronics okay. Institute. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your interest and have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are facing inflation in large part because of government spending, just dumping so much money into the economy. That's reality. I'm sorry. That's true. And yet we're dumping more money into the economy now. So we've got this problem and our solution is to put more money in. It's, as I said yesterday, we're talking on the show about this. It It is the literal definition of putting out a fire with gasoline or trying to. Well, we are though, last night we were talking, it was about the federal government, but we are equal opportunity critics here on the show. It's not about your politics. It's about a consistency on the issue, which is all governments, all parties, after going through COVID and the money they spent, all governments, I think, should be pulling back a little bit and saying, okay, we blew our brains out to try and get us through that. Time to now that things are getting a little bit back under control, time to let's let's start getting rid of a little bit of the debt, a little bit of the deficit. Let, let's start trying. Apparently not. Uh, not only we know what the federal government is doing, well, now the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has pointed out that Doug Ford and the Conservative government here in Ontario has increased government spending by over 8% this spring compared to the first quarter of last year. Let me bring in Jake Goldberg. He is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, how are you today? 
I'm doing well. Great to be with you. I, I, I don't know, and you and I have talked about this before, Jay, and I know that this is a rhetorical question because there is no answer, but I don't know where the party or the government is in this country that seems to want to show any kind of fiscal restraint. I don't believe it exists. I don't believe it exists, but uh, here in Ontario, we seem to be pretty well at the worst end of things. When it comes to provincial government, uh, you know, it's funny. The, the Ford government is running what is the largest deficit in the province's history, and the budget that was just passed has a deficit that's larger than the deficits we ran during COVID. So they're actually running a larger deficit now than during the pandemic. Uh, but we actually have five provincial governments that have come out over the last several weeks and announced they've balanced their budgets. We've got New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Alberta, British Columbia, and Saskatchewan. And yet somehow here in Ontario, we're running a $20 billion deficit. And as you said, the reason we have all this inflation and the high interest rates to react to the inflation is because governments have been dumping billions and billions of dollars into the economy too much money chasing too few goods, and that's what's driving up prices. We know that. We know that the Bank of Canada is having to raise interest rates dramatically, which affects our car payments, our mortgages, everything, uh, to try to react to this inflation. And as you said, governments are just dumping fuel onto the fire. I mean, we saw the federal government come out and say, we're going to spend $4.5 billion to help Stop inflation. Well, it's the exact opposite of what's happening. So it just seems, as you said, governments at all levels, but it's particularly bad here in Ontario, where we have at Queen's Park a government that seems to be very similar to the government on Parliament Hill. What I don't understand with this is that, to me, okay, so I've never run for office. I'm never going to go into politics. It would drive me completely around the bend. I would lose my mind. But if you have just been elected, this nobody likes things to be cut. No, no taxpayer, nobody who lives in the province likes when programs get cut or things get cut. But if you have just been elected and you were ever going to cut, now is the time because then you've got four years for people to forget before they have to go back to the polls. They're not going to cut anything the closer you get to an election. So I really thought that we might see some restraint early on and some pullbacks to try and get things under control. If they're not doing it now, I don't know that they're ever going to do it. Well, I don't know that they're ever going to do it. Uh, you know, when Doug Ford was elected, he said the party with taxpayers' money is over, but he increased spending $5 billion over and above what Kathleen Min was planning to spend, and that was before the pandemic. So unfortunately, we haven't seen any evidence from the Ford government since they've come into office that they're willing to uh, exercise any kind of restraint or try to improve the province's finances in any way. Uh, we've just seen, again, Ontario now is the most indebted subnational unit in the entire world. And with all the other provinces, a handful of them balancing their budgets, they're at least coming up with plans to get to balance. The Ford government doesn't even have a plan. They haven't even come up and said, here's our three, four, five-year plan to get back to balance, never mind one or two years. And so that's why it's so concerning. It's the same at the federal level. You've got governments that just have absolutely no plan to figure out how to balance the books. And as you said, even if we were to see government freeze spending in certain areas, you know that could go a long way to improving our bottom line. The Ford government isn't doing that. Spending is up over 8% year over year. And when you're talking about 
having a deficit as large as we already do and then increasing spending by 8%, that's a ton. And let me just point out, interest rates are going up and that affects our bottom line at the provincial level as well. Debt interest costs are already up 17% uh, compared to last year. And by the time we get to the end of this year, we could be spending $18, 19000000000 billion just on interest on our debt. And that's just going to lead us spiraling out of control. Well, and there's one other thing that we're not even talking about here, and that is we, a week or so ago, two weeks ago, maybe we're talking about, hey, could there be an education strike? Because now education workers and medical hospital health workers and all kinds of other public sector unions are all looking for a big raise after a few years of not getting raises or not getting real raises. And so whatever we've now gone up by 8%, that that could go up much more if all of a sudden all these agreements have to happen with all these unions. It could. And this is, again, why the Ford government has clearly been so fiscally reckless. I mean, to increase spending this much, uh, and that's beyond talking about, as you said, uh, the pay for uh, government employees. Uh, we we already have some of the highest paid government employees in the country here in Ontario. We we know that, but as you said, there's going to be ne- negotiations that are coming through with teachers, with other groups. They're going to be wanting raises in, in the face of uh, inflation that we've seen here. So what's really dramatic, dramatic and, uh, you know, what you really have to wrap your head around is that somehow the Ford government has managed to increase spending uh, over and above 8% before figuring out any potential raises they're going to have to give to government employees. So you're right. And, and to you know, how they managed to figure out how to balloon spending this large even before you're getting into negotiations, I mean, this is just beyond rec- reckless fiscal mm. policy. It is, uh, it, yeah, you know what, we... I keep saying, let's hope that someone gets back on track, but I'm, I'm, I'm not having a lot of hope. Let's put it that way. Uh, Jay Goldberg, uh, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for this. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know what? As I say, we are not, uh, I am not only going to criticize a particular government of a particular party. It's the issue. It's not who you, it's not what color you, your banner is. It's what are you doing? And we don't have any right now that I see any parties, any governments that are willing to make hard decisions in difficult times. And I don't want people starving and I don't want our medical system kneecapped, but they're, they are not the only two areas where we spend money. There have got to be ways that we can find savings. But nobody wants to try and do that because as soon as you cut a program or cut a plan or do something like that, everyone screams and yells. So it's way easier just to spend. Once upon a time, apparently we had governments and leaders who were willing to make tough cuts. Not anymore. Clearly, not anymore. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I saw this piece and it's a fascinating piece that When I say fascinating, it really was interesting, but it also resonated because I've been thinking this for a long time. I just haven't had a lot of other people put it into words. This did that. It's in a online publication called Vulture. I don't know if you've ever read vulture.com. They they put a lot of interesting stuff up there, often pop culture, that kind of thing. Here's the headline. 
Invasion of the Vibe Snatchers. Pop music is regurgitating itself faster than ever. A little rough on the headline there, but the point is you now have a lot of publishing companies who have bought the catalogs of certain artists. They have paid a lot of money for them. They are sitting there. They don't want to not do anything with them. So you now have a lot of other artists who are sampling or using those earlier pieces of music to work them into their music, but it really does tend to create some repetition. Where's the originality? Where's the creativity? Where is the Lennon and McCartney of 2022? Eric Alper is a publicist. He's a music commentator. He is a self-described shameless idealist. We love that one. Uh, Eric joins us now. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I am, I am fine. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm reading through this and, and feeling validated because I've been thinking this for a long time. Every time, not every time, often I'll hear a new song and I'll think, wait a second, I know that background riff. They're just taking <laughs> old good songs and reworking them for their own purposes. That's not creative. Um, to a certain extent, you know, it, it, it's no different than, say, in the 80s and 90s and, and even earlier, and we'll get into that, from the use of sampling. Um, there was a time around the late 1980s when it seemed like every single pop song that was on the radio used a sample of Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks, the drum beat, and that drum beat was in something like 15 Billboard Top 100 songs. That's sampling. That's actually taking the original music and inserting it into your own. This kind, the interpolation, it refers to part of a melody that somebody had previously recorded, and you're re-recording it. So you're kind of throwing in the chorus of, say, Pastime Paradise from Stevie Wonder and turning it into Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. Or even in She Loves You, the Beatles kind of interpreted um, a French song in there as well, or All You Need Is Love. One song is weird. When I was on hold, the one song that came on the radio um, uh, was um, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And yep. at the end of it, when Sting sings I Want My MTV in the beginning and end, that's the melody to Don't Stand So Close to Me. So he kind of used his own music and a different, you know, different words, but using the melody. So it's not lifting the actual guitar solo or the exact um, sampling of the lyric, but it's kind of recreating it. So it's making something old into something new. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but did you say interpolation? Yeah, in, in, <laughs> in, interpolation. All right, that's uh, that's that's the word for the day. Everybody, make a little note there. Eric's introducing words now that we can look up later in the dictionary and drop them into conversation <laughs> tomorrow. Everyone, everyone, it, it, tomorrow, it your homework. Nobody had used this word for seven hundred years, and then all of a sudden, it seems to be in every pop story out there. It's inter. And then polation, like cross-polation. And that's exactly, it's a pretty good word for the meaning of it. It is. I want everyone tomorrow as their homework assignment to use that in a conversation <laughs> and see if people's eyebrows cock up smart. and go, what? Yeah. Did, all right. So, but okay. I, I get the idea that this has been around for a while, but it, it, it does seem like what we have a lot of now. And again, maybe I'm just, maybe this is just old guy syndrome is the songs that it's not just like a clip, it's chunks of a song. And all you do is put yeah. some sort of like beat on it, a new, you know, boom, 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 you know, something. And you put that over top of, um, uh, one of the most famous one was, uh, with journey, uh, don't stop believing 
when it came back and they made it into a, 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 a you know a dance hall track which helped to really bump it back up that yeah. in the sopranos but it's like well you're not just taking a lick you're taking the whole song and just giving it a little bit of a more of a beat and more of a bass line and calling it a new tune which it isn't yeah and and what's interesting about it is that um if it was indie small artists doing this as a way to jump up and down on TikTok to try to get noticed, um, we wouldn't be talking about it. It would just be like, oh, you know, those are just uncreative ideas. But, you know, when Doja Cat, who is probably one of the biggest performers going, when she uses Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog, which then Elvis kind of covered that song, in a major motion picture of Elvis and breaks through the top ten, um, when One Republic uses it for their song, when, um, when other, uh, you know, it was one thing when we watched Pearl Jam in concert do, you know, Daughter or Jeremy, and then in the stream of consciousness, Eddie Vedder would throw in a couple of lines from a Neil Young song. Or you um, 2 used to do this all the time during Bad. They used to sing Ruby Tuesday. And that was a little bit of, a, of an early version of it. And you think, oh, that's kind of cool. We're kind of getting into maybe the brain of what Bono is thinking at the moment. Or maybe he's just riffing off the top of his head. But when it starts to become top ten hits... There's something else going on, and I think you absolutely touched on it in the beginning of the conversation. It's all of these music publishers that spent $300 million on Neil Young, $400 million on Bob Dylan, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen selling it for $100 million. They're not just looking to exploit those songs in movies and television. Maybe they're kind of talking to a whole bunch of artists saying, wouldn't it be really cool to add this verse from Blowing in the Wind in your next song, Justin Bieber? And that's exactly what's kind of happening because they're getting writing credits for it. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that, that's got to have something to do with it. I mean, money, you can always trace it back to money. And if you've spent that kind of cash to buy the rights to that music. You don't just want, you're, you're not just doing it to protect yourself and you don't just want it to collect dust. You, yeah. you want to do something with it. So it makes sense. Yeah, and it's also, you're almost halfway there when you do something like this into the the consciousness of the listeners that you're already using a classic song um, that's already a fabric of our time and you're halfway there because you've already grabbed people with something that they're familiar with in order to get them to listen to a new song. Because it's really hard to get people to listen to new music. It takes something like 15, 20 times for the average person to even remember the title of a song or being able to hum it back. If you throw in a Hall & Oates song in the middle of that song as a mashup, yeah. Yeah. then you're like, oh, I've already got you, you know? I can actually remember the last song that on the very first playing, I said, I got to download that song and it doesn't happen often. Like that's how rare it is. It was, I don't know how many years ago, it was Uptown Funk. The first time I heard it, I said, okay, I got it. Whatever that is. I think I was in a car in the passenger seat and hit a Shazam to find out what it was called and said, I got to get that one. But it happens so rarely that that time you hear it the first time you go, that's amazing when it's brand new. Yeah, and, and you know, it, 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 it's so funny that you mentioned about follow the money because I think all of this really kind of hit a fork in the road a couple of years ago when there was a really big legal argument and a lawsuit um, over the song Blurred, um, Blurred Lines when it was um, the Marvin Gaye estate sued Robin Thicke and his 
songwriting team because they were using the the kind of energy and the sounds that were kind of like Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up, even though that um, that Robin Thicke and his team said we didn't sample it, but we kind of maybe used some of the spirit of the drums, which were kind of, you know, uh, they were pretty original when Marvin Gaye did it. Um, this just kind of takes it one step further, so you don't necessarily have to find that sample anymore, which costs a lot of money. You know, if you want to go use a Led Zeppelin, you know, guitar lick, I mean, you could be paying anywhere between, you know, a million and $10 million. That's even if you get an answer from them. Um, But if you maybe want to use one or two lines of Stairway to Heaven in your song, that actually might be cheaper for the artist to use rather than the actual song of it. And because you're getting, they're giving you the publishing rights too. They're making you a songwriter. So forevermore, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page will always get money for that. And I think people are, you know, things like COVID not allowing people to make money on tour, the fact that CDs aren't selling very, you know, a lot, and the fact that vinyl records maybe are, but, you know, nowhere near what CDs used to make. I think artists are kind of looking at, well, I've already done my autobiography. I've already got the Netflix special out. Where else am I going to make my money? And maybe getting on the new Olivia Rodrigo track, introducing Led Zeppelin to a whole new generation. Maybe that's just the way that it's going to go. All right, you mentioned Olivia. Let's switch that to Olivia. All right, you put out a tweet. And and for people who don't know, Eric is one of the legendary tweeters out there. He's even been cited by CNN for his, uh, seriously, for his amazing tweet abilities. I'm crappy at tweeting. You are fantastic at it. And one of these ones, and I saw this and I wanted to ask you about this because it's a, I think it's a brilliant comment in its own way by Olivia, the late Olivia Newton-John. And she said this, it annoys me when people think that because it's commercial, it's bad. It's completely opposite. If it's commercial, people like it. And that's what it's all supposed to be about. This, of course, you know, there are artists who don't want to be commercial because that's a sellout. You've just sold out to the man. We want to be, you know, doing something that is different, whatever. Does she have a point? Oh, absolutely. There's not one person on the planet who's an artist who wouldn't want a hundred million people to sing back their song at a concert. Um, and, And people who say that they don't want that, they're lying because those people can just go and record an album and then bury it in the backyard, you know, if they felt that strongly about it. <laughs> there's, there's certain people that are comfortable with the, with the small, you know, tender audience that they have. Um, there are others whose job it is um, at least mentally to themselves, to sell as many records as possible. They have the dream of replacing Coldplay or BTS or U2 or make as much money as the Rolling Stones. Ed Sheeran certainly does. Um, but, you know, when you take a look at Olivia's line that, you know, people kind of poo-poo commercial, uh, you know, commercial music and popular music, it's kind of always been like that. I mean, even Colonel Tom Parker sold I Hate Elvis Buttons alongside I Love Elvis Buttons because he just wanted to make money off of the people that didn't want to buy Elvis. So there's something to be said about that, that I think once it gets too commercial and a little bit overplayed, um, people kind of tune it off on purpose and they don't like them. Um, Phil Collins had that in the 1980s. He's actually used to call radio stations after um, No Jacket Required, the album came out that just sold like 20 million copies. He used to call radio stations in the U.S., beg them to stop playing him because he just thought he was too oversaturated. Well, I mean, look, I'm with you. I think that if, if 
who, who I've never understood this. Who is the artist? And I, it's to your point, who is the artist who wakes up in the morning and says, you know, what would be really awesome today if nobody liked what I'm doing? <laughs> I mean, really? And, and yet that's kind of what this idea that if you're commercial, it's bad. That's kind of what it's saying is I want to toil in obscurity, have seven people, you know, it, it, have you ever watched this? I'm sure you have. I don't know if people listening have, if you ever watched the show flight of the Concords. I haven't, but I but I know about really? them though. All right, so it, it, Flight of the Conquerors, brilliant duet. They're a, a comedy duet from New Zealand. You've seen the two guys in movies and stuff, but anyway, the show is about their life. They have this one crazed fan, and that's it. And she follows them around <laughs> everywhere. Uh, she's the girl I can't think of her name. The woman who was in Last Man on Earth. If you watch that show, um, okay. Anyway, and. I'm thinking to myself, who wants to be that band that that has a concert and one person shows up or four people show up? You everybody you wants to play the stadium. Yeah. Everybody wants the stadium. Why would you say otherwise? To me, all it does is sound like an excuse. When when you talk to an artist and they're very quiet moments away from the media and away from the crowd, and, and I've certainly hung out with enough of them to get into these kind of conversations, of when you start to sell like 10 million albums around the world, um, it does get too much. And in fact, we're seeing the mental health anguish and the, the pressures put on everybody from Sam Fender to Wet Leg to Justin Bieber cancel, and Shawn Mendes canceling concerts because it's just it's a, a, just unbearable. Like being being that famous is truly uh, out of the ordinary for human beings. Um, so what they try to do is they try to pivot a little bit and maybe they don't make the same album again, even though that the record label wants them to, um, to keep that money train rolling. So they, they might make an album that's on purpose, not commercial. Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, the, the very solemn album following the massive success of the river. But once it's gone, they will always look back 20, 30 years later and say, you know, I maybe just should have taken a break and come back healthier. I didn't have to shut the door on my success completely because they miss it. And they're 40 years old and they can't sell more than 400 tickets around the world. That's okay for some people. But for others, it's like, I wish I could just have that, that success back again and handle it differently. Um, and I think that that's what Olivia Newton-John is saying was like, it's okay to completely have hits after hit after hit, as long as you kind of take care of yourself so that you don't self-combust. Well, and plus all those people you just described, they don't, nobody listens to them tell their story after and hears them say, oh yeah, I tried to build an album that nobody was going to buy. What people yeah. hear is you were successful and then it was a flash in the pan and you failed because you couldn't do it again. And whether it's, I was trying to pull back or whatever else you, you are forever stuck with that line that your next album was a flop and yeah. you got to live and, with that. And through no, sometimes it's through no fault of anybody, you know, when Fleetwood Mac sold, you know, a gazillion copies of rumors and then built their own studio and spent, you know, four or five, six million dollars recording Tusk, their double album. It was kind of similar to to Rumors. It was just an album that the industry said it was a stiff because it only sold six million copies, um, and and that led the whole kind of 
not a downturn, but certainly, you know, for a good period of time, um, they were stuck with that tag. So sometimes just the overreaching heights of something that just through no fault of you, that's the amazing thing. Bruce Springsteen might have wanted to sell, you know, more copies than anything else that he did. But I think if you were to ask him, would you want to sell 35 million copies of Born in the USA? Um, I think he probably would have said no because he, he nobody could handle something like that back at the at the time. You know, outdoor mm. concerts weren't even a thing until Live Aid, and all of a sudden, Madonna and Springsteen and Michael Jackson, all these big bands, are forced to do it because they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And what did Springsteen do for his next album? He recorded an acoustic record. What did Madonna do? She recorded a Broadway album. Like sometimes that power gives you the ability to do something completely different with it, but some. Sometimes, you know, maybe artists will never admit this. Sometimes they want to self-sabotage their own career just a little mm. bit, just to bring it back down to a manageable handle. Yeah, we we got to go. But it's like, yeah. I, again, having gone to see Paul McCartney in concert and listening to every single person in the arena at the top of their lungs sing Hey Jude back at him, I there, you will never convince me. You will never convince me that there is an artist on the planet that would rather have be playing some freeform exploratory fusion <laughs> thing that nobody knows or likes and stare at you blankly Paul than to be that. on stage and have under, that yeah. happen. Yeah, and, he just but, did it under a different name, right? So he still has the ability to go off and do his really, really weird stuff under his alias called the Firemen. But then when he's Paul McCartney, yeah, get Got red carpet who wouldn't? Going. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. If you're a musician, who would not prefer that? I can't. I, you're going to have a hard time. Not you. Anyone <laughs> will have a hard time convincing me that someone who is just so firm on their convictions that I don't want to sell out to the man and be popular really believes that. What they're saying is, I haven't figured out how to sell anything to the man yet. But wait till I do, and then I'll be a millionaire and be really popular. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Eric Alper, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.